Today's guest is a longtime friend, Mike Guerin, who immediately upon graduating from Cornell University, raced to the lower keys and began his 34 years on the water, and in short order, earned his reputation as one of the most coveted guides. He's won major tournaments, fished with the best anglers, and guided during an era where the fish were plentiful and the skiffs were few. Those that were fortunate enough to have fished back then speak of that time as a sacred generation that we'll never see again, but the memories are bright as ever. Sit back and enjoy the ride. This is a good one. We broke everything. We broke lines. We broke hooks. We broke rods. We broke our minds. We broke marriages. We broke the whole thing. We uh, came up with the idea of going out that night and chasing girls, and whoever had the biggest pair of panties won the pot. I knocked another arrow, and he turned around the other way, and I shot him going through the other way. So I double-lunged him both ways. But it was nothing for us to paddle an air mattress out into government cut. I got him on. All right, now we're going to teach him a lesson. I'm just an old guy that likes to fish. I'm not quitting yet. And he said, well, who the hell do you think you are, Sue App? And I said, that's exactly who I am. Life's journey to the grave should not be one arriving with a pretty, well-preserved body, but rather skid in broadside in a cloud of smoke, thoroughly torn out, thoroughly used up, proclaiming wildly, wow, what a ride. <laughs> There's something fishy going on here. Mike, it's so great to have you on the podcast. I mean, we've known each other forever. Um, I remember the early years when I was fishing with Harry Spear. Gosh, probably close to 40 years ago. There were not many guides down here. But but you and Harry and, and Steve, tell me about those early years. Those were uh, great times that I look upon so fondly now. And it was strange. I was very much an outsider. Come, not having been here and lived here and grown up here. Um, and I came down here and people just didn't do that then. I mean, some of the stuff you hear about, you know, 92 degrees in the shade and all that. I mean, it was cutthroat, like big time. And it was it was cool. I mean, I I just kind of did it a different way. And, and uh, I was going to do it properly and not mess with anybody and it ended up being just fine. But how did you learn the dynamics in the country I'll when you, you first got here? Because you didn't have anybody take you under their, their wing. No. I came down. Um, I'd been fishing here since I was a little kid, just coming down on vacations and stuff like that. With whom? Uh, mostly just on my own. And the first time I ever did it, I was probably fifth or sixth grade. And we went with a guy named Jamie Brody out of Holiday Isle. And we ran up to Newport. And I hooked five bonefish on fly. I broke everyone off, like instantly. And that was back in the days when we bonefished with like eight pounds. It wasn't like this 16 stuff that everybody uses now. Um, but it was, that was it. I was just like, this is the greatest thing ever. This is, there's nothing like it. It combined hunting and fishing at one time. And it was just, that was it. I was done. 
Yeah, but how did you learn more to be confident in being a guide? Like, did you just look at a map and say, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try this? I spent every moment on the water. I had to work. I was tying flies, still commercially, a lot. Um, And I'd do that at night, and I just fished. I had a boat right away, and I just fished and fished and fished. And I didn't know anything, and I didn't ask anybody anything. Um, I think one of the great, great stories was like when I got down here, I asked around who, who's the best guide? I mean, I was this punk kid, right? Who's the best guide? Who's the best guide? Steve Huff. I mean, wherever you went, Steve Huff. So I drove over to Steve Huff's house on Duck Key and I sat there and waited for him to come home. <laughs> and he came driving in and I walked over and I said, you know, introduced myself and I said, I just want to know who your competition is going to be for the best guide down here. And you said that? <laughs> yes. And I don't know why he didn't just, he didn't just like dope slap me. It's like, get out of here, kid. You're bothering me. But he didn't. He was like, ah. Oh. And, and we've been friends ever since, but I never would ask him anything like a spot or anything like that. So if he shared, he shared, but I would never ask. And so like all these spots that, people knew about just knew about like named and i had no idea none at all but you found them i found them on my own and that was a lesson i got pretty early on once i met harry and harry's like you don't want anybody to tell you about a spot and what to do there because we might not be doing it the best way go figure it out on your own also too i i think it goes without saying that if somebody tells you where they caught that fish the day before, you can't go there. Oh, no doubt. Absolutely. But there's so many people that will race you to that spot the next day. That's one of the things that's changed immensely right now. Like Lower Keys backcountry was in the days before any GPS, cell phones, you had a marine radio, which you hoped got through. And I can remember George Hommel telling me, I was like, oh yeah, I was out in the water keys, you know, fishing bonefish. And he was like, oh, just be careful out there. Right? Yeah. Now it's like, that's nothing. Every dingling is out there. Right. But it was then. Because because you had trouble. There were only a handful of people that could come get you, like on low tide in the lower keys backcountry, if you got into trouble. It was a different world. And so there were few And I think that was part of the camaraderie too. Like if I saw Steve or Harry out there or or Nat Raglan, I mean, we'd pull up boats together, say hi, talk. Right. And now you're like, hmm, jerk, what are you doing here? You know, I mean, it's different. And so like that fishing pressure, like if Steve says, oh, I was down and I was tarpon fishing, you know, in back of Big Pine, I would would not even go there for a couple of days. Because that's been fished. Go f- further somewhere else. And that's what kept that tarpon fishing so good in the back that it doesn't have now. Because somebody is beating on them. Every day. Every day. So you can't have two fish come pulling into a spot and hang out there. Oh, this is good. Three more come. Four more come. Five more come. And then you come in a week later. And it's like, woo, boom, boom, boom. And then you leave them alone again. Right. And now they've been hit and they don't get time to build. 
And I think the same with permit too. That's changed a lot. I remember Harry telling me um, when we were fishing 30, 40 days a year, I would ask him about a certain spot, you know, that we'd fished a couple of days before and we'd done really well there. And he said, no, we've got to let that rest for at least another three or four days. But that's just impossible to do right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. It is, but I still go through that motion. In your mind? Physically. Physically. If you fish with me, <laughs> I feel bad for my clients. <laughs> because if we come into a spot and we do well, I mean, I'm almost certain not to go back there the next day. I already and hoping, I, I found it. And They're hoping there. nobody else is going to go in there. Yeah, and, and I know I'm fooling myself. I know somebody's going to be there, but... That's still how makes you, me feel good. But that's how, you, yeah, it correct. So, right. so I want to bring it back. You were a, a trout guide in Montana before coming down here. No, or, I mean, I did, I did guide like through high school and stuff in Colorado, Roaring Fork, mm-hmm. Frying Pan. Oh, you did. Yeah. Oh, really cool. Um, but no, I mean, I came straight here. Um, my wife was at the bottom of the steps when I got my last test at Cornell, and. Loaded everything in a Honda Civic and off to the Keys we went and we were here. God bless her. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. What did you, stu- you study at Cornell? Fishery science. Okay. And I worked, I was working during the summers and then one year I had to take off. I was working for the Colorado Division of Wildlife and I realized I wasn't going to make it in a bureaucratic environment. Right. How did that help you become a fisherman? I don't think anything like you'd think of on the surface, but I think it's down there and the way you interpret things that that's background helped for sure. Right. Let's talk about the, the growing years of permit fishing with Dell and, and Steve and yourself and who else was out there, you know, in those growing pains. Oh, I mean, Harry, uh, you know, Harry, I can't say enough about Harry and he doesn't get talked about much that anymore but that's good <laughs> yeah he is he was my mentor <laughs> he's good um yeah um bill levy he was out there floundering around you know fishing him out of a canoe in front of marathon um nat did some gil drake did some for sure um but people don't there's another thing people don't realize in the modern world too like everybody thinks you go permit fishing with fly we did not go permit fishing with fly. That was like not even a th- something you thought about until that started coming along. And so when I first met Dell, he had 14 permit. Finished up with 500 and some? 513. He had 14. Wow. So yeah, things changed dramatically. You were there at the doorstep. Yeah. And it was, I mean, you know, you'd see him and you'd throw a bonefish fly over there and whatever that's not going to happen but you did it but you didn't go we're going permit fishing today until you know steve and dell kind of got things rolling along and then i got with dell early on because of steve steve put him with me to get more days and we ended up i don't know i think we fished like 17 days a year or so quite a bit yeah and i god i treasure those days because we were doing stuff you know so early on and it was just like every time you got them it's just like wow but when we were when i kind of moved to where i wasn't here as much um 
we averaged like one a day was what we tried to average. And we did, and which seems really good now. God, so, so, so how many shots were you getting on a real good day back then? A real good day? 40, 45. Oh, good Lord. What's a good day now like? I had 40 last Friday. Did you really? Wow. But, but that's like out there. Um, if you do 15, 16, I would say that's a real good it's day. It's a strong now. day, yeah. And I'll tell you what was a bad day. One day, I was, we, Steve and I both launched out of Garrison Bite. I was with Malcolm. He was with Dell. It rained all day. Terrible. Worst permit conditions you could get. And we both came in at the same time. And I said, oh, God, that was terrible. You know, and I was always like, I would ask like Steve, like that kind of stuff. Like, how many shots do you get? Because I want to know. Right. You can compare. Right. Like, how am I doing? Right. And he's like, I think, you know, I think he said like 10. And I said, we had eight. He's like, well, that's all right, you know? And I think about that now. I mean, blowing, raining hard all day, and we had eight shots. I mean, eight shots now is like, well, that's not a bad day. Not a bad day, right. And that was terrible. I mean, that was like a terrible day. Um, I don't want to jump too far ahead too, too fast, but when did you realize that you guys were going to be successful at chasing permit? What was the, what turned the tide, if you will? It was, you know, it, it really was the fly, the fly first and foremost. And, and I don't know who came up with them, but whoever came up with the dumbbell eyes, that changed flats fishing. And nobody gets any credit for this. The dumbbell led eyes changed flats fishing, changed bone fishing, changed permit fishing. And, and those guys figured out, you know, our, our initial thing was these fish are so spooky. Oh, let's throw it 20 feet ahead of them. Womp, womp. That's not working. And, it, and, and Steve and Dell really figured out, like, throw it to them. Put it there. Make him, that, make him yeah, see it. And, and then the, that fly, and I can tell you Dell did this every day. He'd take his little merkin fly and he'd drop it on the side of the boat and he'd look at it and he'd go, that looks good. And it was the way it sank. Because everything we'd done before, we had we had lots of flies that looked like crabs, but they all sank like or like this, and the fly needs to go just like a live crab, and that changed the whole world of it right there. So it was about the the dumbbell eye and how it was tied to keep it sinking. It made it sink right versus like George versus Anderson spin. had that fly where he had the coil of lead on the bottom, which. We got to the idea of getting the fly down, but it sunk like that. And that's not what it And it needs is. to dive. It needs to dive. And a lot of times the permit eat them on the dive? They'll eat it on the dive. And flies have gotten a little bit better and more fish are taking them up here. They almost all used to take them. They'd wait for it to hit the bottom So the, the, before uh, they'd get it. And you almost didn't. Your highest, your highest percentage shot used to be a fly that didn't spook them and landed on their side to where they didn't really get to look at they it. They didn't see it hit, but they heard it. They heard it and they look back and they just see that shape like, ooh, and they don't. Because then if it lands three feet out here or four feet in front of them, like with our original Merkins, they're like, 
they get too good of a shot. <laughs> so you would actually tell nice. your angler to, to aim for the side of them? No, I wouldn't. Do, you didn't do that. But I'll tell you Dell's famous statement. He says, I, I aim for the head, and I'm going to miss a little bit one way or the other. And I oh, that's cool. Yeah, and it's right. You are going to miss a little bit one way or the other. And you'll spook a lot of them if it lands there. And I tell people to this day, like, we do things a little differently now, but I still say, I mean, spook them. I don't care. Make them see it. Spook 10 of them. Make them feel it. One of them's going to get it. You keep throwing over there eight feet ahead of them. No one's We're just wasting time. So Interesting. How has the tarpon fishing changed since you first were down here? (laughs) You really want to go there? Well, we, well, were, well, we were talking you know, about what, it on the couch. Well, well, just, well, let's just do this. I want to bring it up. Well, let's just do this. You know, this is uh, June 5th, 2021. What's your season been like? Um, this has been an incredibly rough season. I can't imagine there's been a season that's been cooler weather throughout. Um, and maybe I'm sure I'm wrong on that, but it's been cool. The fish try to come in. They get knocked out by the wind and the cold. Even when it seems like it's pretty been pretty nice, you're still not out there sweating. Right. And a good tarpon day, by the time you walk out of your house and get to your car, you should have been bit by a mosquito and feel like you need another shower. That's a tarpon day. Right. And we're just not getting that. So you think it's water temperature mostly? And the wind. They don't like wind. They're such they, a they hate wind. And if they're not, it's one thing to have wind and they're all here. And they can kind of deal with it, and they bite pretty good. And they deal with it, but trying to get them to come in to the flats with the wind blowing is just, they don't like it. You were talking uh, over on the couch before we got started about about the poon house, if you will, and what you like to see the fish do, where you like to find them. Can you articulate that again? <laughs> I don't fish hardly ever on the ocean. Um, I used to have it as a, a matter of pride that I would not fish the ocean until June 1st, back in the day. Like, it's not going to happen. I'm not going out on the ocean until June 1st. And why was that? Because there were still plenty of fish everywhere else that you didn't need to. And um, now you do. They travel so much earlier on the ocean. I mean, mid-March... A lot of years we've gotten used to them going out there now. It's like, what are you guys doing? Get back where I want to fish you. Um, but to me, tarpon fishing, I've seen tarpon, too many tarpon in the old days, and it biases my fishing now. Um, I saw them when they liked to bite and when they were happier. And I like to try to still find that and not have fish that are just... I don't know how to describe it, and I'm not taking it away from anything, but like if I'm throwing at a big group of 40 out there and 39 of them don't want my fly, but one dingling says, okay, I'll take it. That's not tarpon fishing. To me, I haven't really achieved very much. Yeah, because right? you, you didn't fool that one fish you were looking yeah, at. Yeah, and you, and I wasn't like going, that's my fish. It's like flock right. shooting. Yeah. Right. And you want to find them unbothered. I want to find them unbothered. I want to interact with them. Um, a calm, calm weather. Um, interact with that fish and, and just watch him doing his thing. And like, well, let me show you what I got here. And put that bug on him and just watch those fins move a little bit. And, you know, and like, eh, here's a little tweak, you know. And he doesn't, 
he's, he's you're playing with that one fish. I love that. It's a longer communication period. Right. Right. Exactly. How do you feel about worm flies? <laughs> <laughs> Talking about feeding a fish. Okay, so I've thrown about, we're at what, June 5th? On my boat, there have been 12, maybe 13 cats with a worm fly this year. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> you're you're a dying breed. I just don't care. You're a dinosaur. I don't like them. I, I think the fish are, for the most part, afraid of them, unless maybe you guys are throwing them okay, but... For the average Joe throwing it, it's, I think the magic wore off. I mean, I think there was magic there initially. Right. but It's now, very technical. If you don't do it correctly, it's yeah. you're not going to get them. And, you know, I mean, I talked to Dustin or whatever, and he <clears> describes <throat> what he's doing with Thane, and it's like, my guys aren't going to do that. No. It's very it's technical. so technical. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, I mean, back to that. So my scenario, I mean, if I can find tarpon... Whether it's in the backcountry, Lower Keys, whether it's in the backcountry, Florida Bay, whether it's in the Everglades. If I'm looking and hunting and hunting and hunting, and suddenly there's a giant dinosaur just laying there all by himself or with two others or whatever, that's tarpon fishing. And you put a fly there and you feel like he's going to bite it. You do it right, he's going to get it. Right. And you fool him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I miss those days. <laughs> I like that. Was like the backcountry fishing this spring any good? Um, yeah, I mean, off and on. I mean, I think the fishing's terrible right now. We fed four yesterday. Didn't get a. Somehow we didn't hook any of them, but fed four. Um, but I mean, there's not many. You know, but you're finding the one. But you're that, looking for one, two shots, three shots. That'll bite. Yeah. Yeah, like you said, it's more hunting. Right. Exactly. You were mentioning that you wanted to say something when we first met. Oh, so story about Andy. Um, oh, no. <laughs> we, just, we just did that. <laughs> um, so Andy Mill, the big legendary tarpon fisherman. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so we came, end of the day, Sugarloaf marina and harry spear is pulling out i'm pulling out and harry comes walking over to me and he says mike he says you're a big skier he says no andy mill he says he's come meet him and harry spear said he will be one of the best tarpon anglers ever and this was 35 years ago wow and i love you harry i was like Right, right. Harry, come on. on. Why are you doing this, right? And I actually stopped at Harry's house that night. We both were on Duck Key. I said, Harry, what was that all about? And Harry says, unbelievable. So just show him something, and he's got it. And he says, I think he's going to work and get unbelievable. Bingo. Happened. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> you know, I no, look, uh, I've been very fortunate to have fished with a lot of great guides. And he was basically my mentor for seven years before I ever started tarpon fishing mm -hmm. tournaments. He and I fished 30 to 50 days a year, and he mentored me bone fishing, permit fishing, tarpon fishing. And he was such a great 
um, articulate uh, guide that could really explain what I needed to do. Because a lot of times in sports, it's hard to understand words. Mm-hmm. Because you may express something where it might be red, and I'm thinking of a certain red, but it might not be your red. But if you can show me the red that you're talking about, then I understand your red. Like when I was a skier, we always watched videotapes. So somebody could say, look, you got to go into that corner. You got to tip a little bit early, you know, and dive in or hold that line a little bit longer. So I'm thinking about timing in a gate. Mm-hmm. But if I see Franz Klammer come through that gate on videotape, then I have it. So with Harry and I or any angler in a guide, it's hard to tell somebody what to do without showing it to them. You know, so I was just very fortunate to be able to have already had a, a pretty good background in, in fly casting right. and fishing out west. So he, it was an easy fit. We were a perfect match for each other. And I love, I, I, if I knew I was going to go fishing with Harry Spear the next day, I could not sleep. <laughs> I was so wired. And it turned out that I didn't sleep for about 10 years. T- tell that story about how you got to the Lorelei at like five or something. Oh, yeah. If I was up in Boca and I knew I was going to be coming down to the Keys the next day, and I'd walk out, you know, like say maybe if I woke up, I couldn't help to go out and look at the top of the trees. And if by chance I had to get up and go to the bathroom, I'd always go outside and look at the trees. Right. If they were still, I, there was no way I was going to go back to sleep. <laughs> right. I'd go lay there and toss and turn for hours, and then at six, you know, you get up and, and, and drive down. So one morning, it's like, three i and i get up i see it's calm i'm supposed to meet harry you know the lorelei i'm not i know i'm not going to go back to sleep and there was a tournament that was kicking off and your brother is fishing in it i get there and i'm there at like 5 30 i'm i'm not supposed to meet harry till you know 7 30 and i'm walking the dock just looking into the water and your brother kevin's there and goes what are you doing here i said i'm waiting for harry he looks at the watch says, what time are you supposed to meet him i said it's 7 30 he's a little early aren't you but that's the relationship uh, i had you know right. with, with tarpon and, and harry and he was an unbelievable mentor yeah yeah he was i mean he 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 gave me a lot of little tidbits i mean harry was like he was famous for a lot of stuff. I mean, you could not, if your whole life was ending, I mean, you needed a tarpon the next day. He's not going to tell you where to go. But, I mean, it's little things like like a fly cast. Put as much energy as needed into it. Not anymore. Right. Oh, that's a thing that drives me nuts. When I see somebody that's been fishing with other guys, tarpon fishing in particular, and they're just, they're hammers. Oh, God, they can throw it. But that fly is just—it turns over so hard. Yeah, here, so, and it's yeah. like, whoa, time out, pump the brakes here. Let's put that fly in there softly. Right. That energy needs to be as much as to land it there. That's all. And Harry was the one that that really like got that. You know, like he told me that one time, and and like other weird things. You know, like we were fishing one time. He and I were fishing one time, and he's like, Mike, why are you, why are you moving that fly like? It's like, well, we're tarpon fishing. I mean, you got to move. You know, he's like, look at all this current. He says, just throw it out there and just let it drift right into his mouth. And it was. It was a super high current spot. It was like, put it there. Give it one little twitch two feet in front of him and just let it flow to his mouth and watch him go. Well, right. 
you know, it's little things mm, like that. Right. There's different than other people are thinking, you know, and he was, he was great for like thinking. I mean, I think he overthought things a lot of times, but he was always like in tournaments when we were fishing against each other, he was always scary. Um, one funny story on that, like in the all tackle one time, <laughs> the water was doing really weird stuff way in the back, you know, and Fred Troxel was the guy who I fished in the all tackle and we had just been out by rabbit and it was like dry land out there and it shouldn't have been. So we were like running across the big base and through a bunch of wind and stuff going up towards cotton key and, and here comes Harry and he's heading right out that way. And we see each other and stop for a second. And he's like, where are you guys going? I'm like, oh, we're heading, you know, over towards Snake Creek. He's, I said, what are you doing? He says, oh, we're heading out by Rabbit. I said, hmm. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Go get him. Here. Bring, bring your towel and some sunscreen. And that night when we got in, he's like, you could have told me. <laughs> <laughs> and your answer was, well, you, you could have told me. You told, you what have you told me? <laughs> That's right. Um. Well, I was going to ask, you fished many years with Kevin Guerin, Mike's brother. Why didn't you ever fish with Mike? Well, maybe next year. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell is that about? You know, you you kind of, and I haven't fished with Kevin in a long time. It's just All by right. chance we started fishing together a little bit, you know. And uh, he was so, so damn good, you know. Uh, great sense of timing with tides and, and fishing the back like you. Have you do you do much rapport correlation or or um um <laughs> with him I, I, intel we do no not really i mean we'll do maybe like how about in the early years but now you're so refined both of you probably don't need to probably but. less in the early years really was it you, just you like don't this you don't want to i would not i want you didn't want that's help. how i was taught by Stephen harry was like you go out and learn it yourself and it really wasn't until when I left the Keys full time and was only coming back part time, then I like said a lot of stuff to him and right. gave him a lot of stuff. But before that, I was like, no, go, go learn it. Go look. Go looking, you know, and that's. What was your relationship like with Kevin growing up? Oh, gosh. Um, it was. Uh, we're, we're a long way apart. He's seven years younger than I am. Right. So growing up, it was, you know, he's this little tag along, right? But my parents would never let me take the car unless you take your little brother. So on all these fishing and hunting things, he was coming along. And which is what I think he's so tough now because right. he had to be. It's like, no, you do it. And I mean, one thing I... I still giggle about to this day is we go duck hunting and we had this massive decoy bag that held six dozen decoys and we'd make him carry it <laughs> six dozen <laughs> decoys <laughs> and it would drag on the ground behind his feet it was like on a backpack straps but it would drag on the ground behind his feet and he'd be way back in the distance and all you could see was the square of the decoy bag you couldn't even see his body <laughs> He'd be, he'd be back there he's coming and he would do it because that's what he had to do right and that's i think to this day like he's tough he's I mean, really he's tough. tough right like he doesn't care there'll be wind days and i'm just like oh my god it's so bad and he, he doesn't complain he he's pushes like, yeah go 
Yeah. So tell me about um, the Dolphin Super Skiff. Mm. I mean, Huff had a lot of uh, a lot of people followed Huff and, and his footsteps with his handkerchief around his face and the clothing and the, the the Dolphin Super Skiff, which I think he still runs. I think he's now getting a a Chittum possibly, but the Dolphin Super Skiff. A lot of the great guides fished that boat. Tell me about why that boat is so good and why everybody yeah. gravitated to I came, it. I came down, my first boat was a, a big dolphin, the 18 dolphin. Sam Hall is a sidewinder. Um, I I got that boat because everybody said, well, you're fishing, you need this big boat, right? And uh, immediately I realized that was a big mistake. And I ended up, I saw what Steve had. Harry was fishing out of one. And I mean, these were the guys, right? Right. And so Nat Raglan had one and Nat Raglan was really too big a guy right? for a super skiff. Yep. I mean, if Nat switched his weight, the angler's flying. I mean, right. so I bought Nat's, which was old blue. It was blue, which was a nightmare because everybody could tell who you were everywhere. Um, but I bought that boat like the next year and... I still fish out of a super skiff. I love the super skiff. It just, it just pulls so nice. It spins instantly. It, my clients today, I mean, they were like, how are we going through this rough water in this tiny boat? And it is a tiny boat, but it, it floats like a cork. It just goes through that stuff. And your brother threw me out of his boat twice. (laughs) 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 We were in the back country. I hooked this tarpon. And as soon as I hooked this fish, I, I got him, but I got him. And for some reason, your brother pushes the back end of the boat. You know, he spins it. And I go, I go flying out of the boat. <laughs> I go, what are you doing? <laughs> and back then, I had some pretty good balance, right, you know. Right, those things right. were so tippy. Kilpatrick said recently, if I ever sold my boat, I think I'd cry. But it's, all, it's the old school guys that have these boats. Well, it's, it's especially in the lower keys. You don't see them as much in Nylon Marauder. That's the because... Um, Steve's influence? No, it's not that. It's that we have to cross lots of rough water all the time. And yet we still need a boat that can, boat that can pull really well. Right. Um, we don't need, especially with the bone fishing the way it is now, we don't need to get that shallow. And the super skiff, while it gets shallow, <laughs> it, will, it will push over crazy shallow stuff. But it doesn't want to float there. But you can push it over it. Interesting. And so, like when the, when um, Scott Deal came up with the, the first Mavic Mirage, like he kind of copied it, but not quite. And the Mavic Mirage was sort of the same, but like it was different. Like, boom, you'd be bone fishing and you would run aground, pulling. Hmm. You weren't going any further. In a super skiff. You run aground, I can lean way over to the right, the angler can, or whichever side, you can walk it right across what you need to go across, or you can just tilt it on its side like that and still keep going. And I mean, that's part of the reason I'm sure fishing a lot of huge bonefish shallow that my shoulders got torn up because I mean, we would chase these giants, you know, hooked up and running and just chase and chase and chase over that boat's not floating. It's just moving mud, going across there. But you could do it. Right. 
And then like the first time I fished in a whip ray and I'll never forget. I was like, Oh my God, if I could have had one of these just for fishing downtown Isla Mirada, it would have been amazing. Right. And it would have saved my shoulders. <laughs> so how bad are your shoulders now? And as a, as a fishing guide, you know, that's their liability. They've come back just fine. I've done total tons of rehab. I, I do stuff for them every single day. If I'm not fishing, I'm doing doing weights and stuff and different exercises for them. But at one time, it was bad. I fished three weeks of June one year with my arm in a sling. And that was in the days when you did not start your motor in loggerhead, by the way. You chased your tarpon polling. And I can remember Richard one time going, Mike, faster, faster. I'm like, I'm one-handed. Right. <laughs> But, you know, I mean, that was part of why, I mean, that was a small reason, but it was part of the reason I left being here all the time because I needed to rest them, just rest them. So it just couldn't keep going like that. Were you ever in jeopardy of, of losing your guiding career because of the shoulders? I thought so, but not, but it turned out to be not be. Right. Yeah. Let's go to the back to the, uh, the bonefish years when those big fish were you know, in the Keys, in Isla Marauda, and you were fishing all those tournaments. You know, you spoke about, you know, about tarpon and about permit. Tell me about those bonefish years. Um, I would say the best stuff ever, and I know you've heard that from other people. Um, it was the greatest. It was, it was the greatest. And when we get together with, you know, talk to Steve, or the other day with talking to Mark Coco or Bob Branham, and it's like, this is what we talk about. This is like what we just worship those times. And that brotherhood of, of being there and doing that together. Like it was, it was amazing stuff. Those fish were just, they're just Spread. unbelievable. Right. We had one fish in a tournament and this was all tackle on a, a spin fish on, and the spin line, you have to remember the spin line monofilament not braid but monofilament i mean it gets nicked on anything and it breaks and a monster fish about way in the back um and it took off it got into deep water and was shooting down the edge of the bank and i was chasing it at 2300 rpms in the boat for 300 yards for 300 yards that's crazy just and not gaining and it was like, I couldn't go anymore because we'd jump on plane and that would be too much. And you're just like, Did you catch that fish? We got it. How big was it? 12, 14, I think. Right. And it was like, how can these fish do this? I mean, they blow me away. They blow me away. Yeah. They're incredible. They will go a big fish, like those giant ones, they're going to deep water. And they're going to get there. Fast. Yeah, and they're going to they're going to go there no matter where it is. They will make it to deep water. I remember the uh the the uh it's almost like a trimmed up motor when they'd leave the flats like on Shell Key when they'd take off. Oh. That was a sight to be seen. And, and I mean it was like, you know, I talked about working those single and double tarpon and stuff, but I mean that was like the ultimate chess match. Right. Is playing with those giant ones. Well, you fished the all tackle so you were fishing with bait. What was it like to watch a big bonefish get the scent of a crab. Okay. Everybody should see this once in their lifetime because it's magic. It is. And the first tournament, the, the first time I fished the all tackle, I was just a punk kid, right? And 
I get Fred Troxell, who had won it before, with Harry. And we didn't pre-fish nothing, right? I mean, we're just like, here's the tournament. I mean, here you go. And Did you have a pretty good idea where to fish? Oh, I totally knew where to fish. Were you but nervous? I wasn't, but I hadn't fished bait. Right. Were you nervous? No. I really don't get nervous like that. Like, I just dig it. Right. Um, and so I hadn't fished bait, right? And here's just, and we, so we start, you know, well, there we are. We're waiting for lines in. We're waiting. We're watching tail and bone fish. Dun, 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 dun. Okay, we can go. And pull in, pull in. And Fred Sosa's cast is like 35 feet from the fish. I'm like, what, what is doing? going on? Fred, what are you doing? He goes, turns around and looks at me and goes, I think it'll be just fine. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It was the coolest thing ever. They're just like bird dogs working scent. Yes. Those bonefish. Yeah, absolutely. And there's that crab and it's over there or shrimp. And he's doing his thing. And then you just watch that dorsal go. Bunk. Nikki, it was, it was unbelievable. <laughs> it's unbelievable. It was, it was absolutely <laughs> crazy. It was like a bear that all of a sudden got your scent. You uh, did a lot of that bait fishing for bonefish? Not a lot of it, but I did. I was on the boat with Bokar and, and Harry yeah. Spear. Uh, we fished the bay bone together three times. You know, we won we won every year yeah. with those guys because Bokar was was one of the best in the right. game, and it always fished the current. You wouldn't fish the fish; you'd fish right. the current. And Bokar would always bite the the end of the crab off and throw it like <laughs> like fifty feet above the fish. So would they rush right over to the bay, no. or, or would they just cruise? They're and... like ding, and they'd hit scent. Right, but then they were like dogs, like coming in on birds. Don't don't. Dun, 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 and they narrow it in. And then all of a sudden. <laughs> you do that so well. <laughs> <laughs> and off to the races. It's almost like a shark, you know, when he has the set. They go from one edge of the cone right, to the right. other. And then when, they gets, when it gets a little tighter, the, the scent it gets a little bit richer. Sure. And then they just accelerate. And you're watching all this with like dorsal and tail out of the water as he's doing it. I mean, and you're just like. This is incredible. I'll tell you what's hard though when you're not used to doing it. When you're throwing monofilament back in the day, where is it? Right? Right. And you uh, lose the crab. Yeah. Like the crab, you think it landed there. And I'd mark it like there's that spot on the bottom. And all of a sudden, the bonefish is like, he's way over here. And you're like, what is he doing? And that's where the crab is. Right. You don't realize they've drift, mm. you know? Because you assume, like, I mean, it's a big crab. Like, it's there, but it's not. Hmm. And we came up with weird little scenario to work that out, too. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hear it. No, I can't tell you. Come, Come on. on. <laughs> You're not fishing tournaments Come anymore. On. Come on, Harry. Those, those big fish died. <laughs> Come on. Give us a piece of the puzzle. We had, we'd actually take, and it, and it was like trout fishing stuff. And back before strike indicator stuff even happened on trout, but in steelhead fishing, there's a thing called a corky, which is just a little cork. Mm. Mm. And I would take and I'd put that and then blood knot on like a 20 pound piece, like that far, not even that far, like that far down to the shrimp or bait and have that above there. And then you could put it out there and you could watch that thing and you knew right where it was. So then you could move it if you needed to. Right, adjust. Yeah. It's like nymph fishing. Sort of. I mean, it's except it's totally visual. Right, you right. Know? But 
Now you knew where it was, which helped me immensely because like I say, I'm fishing fly every single day. I'm looking at a fly line and suddenly I step on this boat and I got to go fish this. And I'm like, where is there's this? nothing I, in I front of you. Yeah. Where's yeah. this thing? I don't know where it is. So we did, I mean, that wasn't doing it all the time, but like early in the morning and stuff when you couldn't see anything, it was good. <laughs> <laughs> and it had nothing to do with like that thing showing you how to bite. It was just showing you where your, where your bait was, where your bait was. That brings up a question. Are you throwing all colored fly lines? For tarpon? Okay, here you go. Mike the Luddite. Yes, and I hate the clear lines. <laughs> but what about what about the ghost tip? Mm. Is it's it ghost is, all right for me? I don't know where. Is I, it is it because you're always communicating to your angler where that fly is, whether to strip it or leave it or I I'll, I'll throw some clear stuff like early morning on rollers. Um I I keep trying it. But I really don't have anybody that is willing to devote to it. And I think you have to devote to it and just mm -hmm. say, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to do this. I mean, a lot of people... A lot of people don't fish enough to understand and feel that, right. you know, that distance. And most people get on your boat and they're rusty from the five days they had the previous year. Yeah. You know, and it, it, it takes a while to acclimate to that. You know, when I tell them, you know, geez, you know, didn't you... Watch your fly. Didn't, why are you moving it like that? Watch the fly. What are you talking about? You know, I mean, I see the fly. They don't see anything. No, they don't. Yeah, but see it, that but stuff. it's interesting because Nathaniel Linville, one of the best anglers down here, he throws all colored lines even on the ocean. So, what are your thoughts on it? Does it really enhance your your chances? You know what? When, when monocores first came out back in the day. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, people were like, oh, you can false cast over the fish and stuff. If you false cast over the fish, they'd spook like crazy with the clear line right over them. So I don't know. Here's, here's, I think in a big school where you don't know what's going on, like in the morning, early. Where that lead fish is. Or yeah. And you don't know where everybody's at. I think it can help you. Yeah. Sure. And like, you know, you throw a big long leader. Okay, most people can't right. throw a big long leader. Right. See, what I've really liked about the ghost tip is I can cut strings really well. So you've got maybe a 12 to a 15 foot leader. Now you got a, a nine foot clear tip. So that gives you a good chunk of clear. Mm -hmm. So you so that string on the ocean, you can cut it. Where I don't think with an all color fly line, you can get that color fly line that close without bothering fish. Right. And you know how you know how many people do not grasp that whole cutting it concept? <laughs> yeah. Do not go back to the front. Forget them. Oh, it's amazing. They always <laughs> want to go to the front fish. <laughs> no, it's over. Oh my! These are still coming, but people, and I just harp on that so much. Look at the big picture. What's going on? Right. Find fresh fish at the. But back you realize it. people, it it's happening hundred times faster than it is mm -hmm. for them versus what you're seeing or what I'm seeing. Do who's, you, who, go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> who's the best fisherman you've ever fished? And mm. why? Wow. I don't know. I mean, I'll talk, I'll, 
I'll say Dell Brown in some ways because Dell was fearless casting a fly. Not the greatest caster. caster. Yeah, I heard that. Not the greatest caster. No way. But somehow the fly got there all the time. And it got there fast. Like Dell would almost freak me out sometimes. It was like he had a spin rod. Like, did you even make a false cast? It's like, Dell, there's a fish, 10 o'clock. See him there, 60 feet? Plunk. What? Plunk? How'd it get there? And it was, it was, that was pretty cool. And he was fearless. Like no matter what the wind was doing, he's going. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you ever dig any hooks out of his back? No, but. In, out of your back? And I wrote, <laughs> and I wrote a little piece for Fly Fisherman Magazine, kind of a eulogy to him when he, when he passed away, because he had this old gray jacket, like from Sears, like, like 1950s. I mean, it was just unbelievable. And it had all these dings and holes all over the back where he would just bounce them off his back going out there. And I'd always give him a hard time. I was like, Dell, go buy a new jacket. (laughs) This one's just fine. (laughs) And I always liked the story. One day it was like, it was just so bad. It was so nasty. And Dell was always wonderful because he would go through the motions like it's a terrible day. But he'd never just say, let's not go. So we'd eat at Stouts, and we'd go drive down to Sugarloaf, and yeah, this looks really bad. And we did that one day, and he's like, "This is really good." What? What's what's good? Well, I can go and get that new zipper put in my jacket. It's just like, huh. <laughs> <laughs> you're Martinelli's apple juice. Get rid of it. <laughs> do you do you still get excited? Going fishing? Yeah, big time. I mean, like you said, you couldn't sleep. Like, I I do that literally every day still. Really? Every day. I either, one of two things. I either get up at, you know, got to take a leak at five in the morning, and I'm looking out the window, which I try not to do, but I can't. I have to look. And I don't see anything moving. And it's, you know, whatever, if it's harping right. season. I'm like, now I can't sleep. I'm ready to go. Or I look out the window and like it's been lately and the palm trees are. And then I'm going, oh, crap. (laughs) What are we going to do now? (laughs) But I still go to breakfast at Galley Girl. No, I, 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 I still totally love it for sure. I love every, every day of it. And a lot, I mean. As a guide, who you're fishing is huge. Right. Your connection with them. Because the fishing might be poor. Yeah. You want people that enjoy everything. And like, no. I mean, if I'm out there and it's like, oh, there's whatever, you know, some big shark or whatever. I mean, I I don't like get all gangbusters about it or anything. But I still like people to acknowledge it and go, oh, that's cool. That's a giant bull shark, you know. I mean, little stuff like that. Um Versus, you know, womp womp. I'm I want just, a picture of a fish. I just want a picture of a fish, which I can't stand. Do you, what's your oldest customer that you've had on your boat? And for how long have you been fishing him or her? Sadly, most of those guys have passed away. No kidding. Yeah. And it's it's something that happens to, you know, I mean, I fished for years. You asked why. We'd never fished together. Um, I had 11 clients who were my entire year. I was going to say, you were probably book solid. And you still are. 
Yeah. I mean, that was it. 11 clients. For the whole year. For the whole year. And that was back in the days when we fished all the time. I would book 285 days a year and, you know, usually fish 275 or 265. Are you serious? Yeah. And that's what you did. And, and I'll tell you what's changed. Bonefish. We were bonefish guides. That's what our skiffs were called. That's what we were called. If, if somebody asked my wife 25 years ago, oh, what's your husband do? He's a bonefish guy. That's what we did. That's what you were called because that was your fish. Every that day. was your annual year-round fish. Year-round fish. And when those bonefish went away, and now you have permit, and if you're a fly fisherman, and now you have permit, which how many people are, can do that? But sure. people Un- try. Uncatchable. You know. Kind of. And then you have tarpon season. And then people, guides make this big thing like they're fishing all the time. But it's pretty hard to do it if you're not. If you don't have that base fish that's around year round, you know. It's hard to find 285 days to fish. Sure it is. So what's the bone fishing like down here right now? The bone fish are coming back. Um, I really wanted to get together with BTT guy, uh, Ross Bocek, before we did this. I really want to discuss some of this stuff with him. Um, I fear all the data that they're coming up with right now says that these fish are genetically intertwined with fish in Mexico and Cuba and all that. I'm very worried about that. Um, I'm totally excited there's bonefish back. Are you suspect of that? I No, but I don't think we're going to get the big fish back because I think it's different genetics. The genetics are, are crossed. Right. You can't take a key deer and everybody's like, Oh, it's the same thing. You can't take a key deer and take him up to Michigan. And he's suddenly a giant whitetail because he's got more to eat. I mean, no, that doesn't work that way. Genetics. Yeah. And if, and if that's what's happened, if we've gotten these fish that have come from somewhere else, which a giant fish there is six pounds. So you don't think these fish are coming from Alamorada? I don't think so. No, a lot of a lot of the, uh, you know, a lot of people are thinking that maybe these new found fish that we have here are coming possibly from Cuba, since they you know they ban the nest there and the Gulf Stream, right. you know, carries the larva here. But we've always talked, you know, for the last number of years, everybody was talking about, you know, that DNA, that big bonefish DNA is gone, and that's. If you think about the first year class of these new fish we have back are 2014. Six-year-old bonefish should be bigger than five pounds. You're right. And that's where they seem to be kind of stopping. Stuck at The biggest one, the biggest bonefish I've seen non-old style, which which there's a handful of in Alamorada, there's a handful in Biscayne. But of the new bonefish, the biggest one I've seen in years and years and years we caught today and not mickey mouse oh it looks like it's 12 pounds seven pounds period today that's that's what it weighed it looks giant looks giant compared to everything we're catching it's seven pounds and that's the biggest one i've seen it's great fish but i just don't see those fish getting bigger when when they had up at long key in the research thing they had some 12 pound fish there when roy crabtree was doing all that research and those 12 pound fish were like 12 and 13 years old. And, you know, they grow fast early and then that really slows down as they get older. I think those 2014 year class fish should be bigger by now. Right. But but back in the day, the lower keys had 
real big fish, 11, 12, 13 pounders? There were some. Some. We caught a 12-pounder on Boot Key once, and that's the furthest south we caught. I've ever caught a big fish. We caught a 14-and-a-half in the contents one time. Um, one of the world record fishes from down by a net key on the grasses. That was like a 14-pounder. Okay, so there were big fish down here back then. Uh, well, the fish yeah. averaged 7 Which and 8 is, pounds. Really? Average? Oh, that's average. Wow. Yeah. I mean, in the bonefish tournaments... Back in the day, 18 inches or smaller couldn't count. Yeah. And if you look at most of the bonefish we're catching, they're like 18, 19 inches. If you look at fork length, that's the reality of it. They're still great. I couldn't tell you how happy I am to have them back, but they're not big yet. Um, And those average size fish, I I just don't know that we're ever going to see that again. And, And the other thing with these new ones is they don't seem to want to be shallow i don't i don't understand it and they will tail a little bit once in a while but it's it's even it's not the same thing like you and i know it's like mm, whoop, we kind of got shallow right we better go back over here again they're not just getting in there. skinny stuff yeah. yeah you think that's all from pressure no i don't think it is i think it's different genetics it's, yeah different fish because you don't have that much pressure down here no, these fish, in a lot of places I'm fishing them, they're not pressured at all. Right. There's there's groups of fish that I'm fishing that no one else is fishing. They're in weirdo places. They're crappy places. How often do you find, <laughs> how often do you find a new spot? Um a lot. So you still you're still looking for new spots every day. You know, Harry told me uh, a long time ago, he said I was asking him the same questions I'm asking you about about learning areas. He said, uh, you know, every day when I'd have a customer, I'd go look at a new area, you know, for at least an hour and a half every day without my client knowing I'm, you know, going on on an adventure. I'm going scouting. But you're still doing that. Tell people all the time. What do the fish do here? Have no idea. Never... I maybe have been there before. Do you tell but them? I don't, do you oh, tell them that oh, you're I'm happy to tell them? And if anybody complains about, it, I say, you know what? There was somebody else that was on this boat <laughs> where you just caught that permit. They were on the boat when I tried that spot before too. You know, and and like during COVID, I spent so much time pulling crappy spots. I can't even tell you by myself. How successful were you? It's it's so much pulling between success. But there's little things you get. Like there's some permit in some spots that nobody will ever think of. That I found just during COVID, just like, and you're, it's painful. That's exactly what Justin Ray said. During COVID, he just went exploring. It's painful. You're just like, oh my God, I need to go catch a fish. But five days but that you says haven't a, done anything. But that says a lot about you still willing to endure pain to go find something new. Because that's the fun. Yeah. Finding, That's what's fun to me. Finding those little nuggets of gold. One yeah. fish in, in one fish in a new spot to me is just like ecstatic versus Yeah, we'll go here and there'll be seven permit. Hope you catch one, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that's good. Right. But once I know it, and, and that's why like I say, sometimes I feel sorry for somebody like my guy's fishing with me, because it might be we'll have it might be slow over there. Great, and they'll be like Oh, I can't wait to get back there tomorrow. 
We're not coming back what? here tomorrow. We're not even launching in this area. <laughs> yeah, didn't Steve Huff say that? Don't tell me where the fish are because you're stealing from me. Right. He said, I don't want to know where you found that because you're stealing. And see, that I think that way we thought about things back in the day was how we were, which I, I think is sad that it's not anymore. I mean, I think it's really sad when I see things like... <laughs> Like last spring in June, some bunch of tarpon showed up in a weird place, right? And and there was one boat there. Other than you. I, I just went past it. I knew what they were doing, but I saw them there. And the next day, there were like seven boats there. They didn't get there by accident. Right, seven. They got there by telling everybody. Right. Why would you do this? Now you've all just goofed it for everybody, you know. It's, and Instagram is a is a uh, is a death in its own way. Yeah, I mean, you can tell what fishing's like in the Keys. Just go on Instagram. And if it's good, ding, 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 everybody's, everybody's putting stuff on there. If it's not, it's crickets. What's your biggest aggravation um, as a guide now after all these years being down here? I think um, I think the ethics have really changed. I think people are lazy about um taking care of spots i mean when i see what goes on in in some of the layup spots like i just the first time i was in i was in there for 10 minutes this year the first time i was there this year i just screamed at the top of my lungs why am i out here um just what i saw going on i mean people don't realize what we did there when you were fishing with hoover in the tournaments and hoover used to call them nests you know and they're out there in the middle. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, there's a little nest of them out there. And they're all laid up, just floating on the top like corks. Yeah. Well, they're not going to do that if they just keep getting run over every day. And that's a that's a traffic jam right there. And it's the highway. Guides are doing it. You know, I saw a guide the last time I was in there come all the way into the back of the main basin. He started out of He ran all the way into the back of the basin, stopped between me and somebody else, only... 100 yards from both of us and starts polling and it's like you get into the back of the basin by the ditch you know and that's how right. you do it so you enter it what are you doing and i don't know i mean i'm hoping like some of the stuff we have that we're trying to get into the sanctuary plan now where some of that will be no wake zones that could be huge to let those tarpon get in places Maybe that's why we don't see those fish being around like we're not seeing them this year. I mean, maybe if they could get into places and hang out and not just get run over where they feel like they got to keep moving all the time, you know? I think Simon Becker and I were talking about that with the permit. Like, there used to be all these places where they floated in huge schools all the time. And then those schools would branch out onto the flats around there. And now those schools aren't floating because they're just getting run over by boats. Too many people. Yeah. What's the future hold? I don't know. You know, I've chased different things and watched them all fall apart. Um, Surprisingly, this place holds up. I mean, when Steve moved to Everglades City and Harry moved up north and, and I went out west and Marshall Cutchin left, we all did it at the same time. And we all thought it was over. Like, this is, it's over. And it might go on for a couple more years and, and uh, 
but it keeps going. It surprises us, you know, it's like, wow, still happening. The baseline is so different. And, right. and I don't know if, if I would have stayed full time, if I could have handled watching it change, but being away enough of the year and, and only, you know, part of, you know, coming back and forth and stuff was actually good because I was able to adjust with the baseline and like still, you know, like it's okay. It's okay. You know, but it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. If you, know, you, if you were to do it all over again, would you be a fishing guide? Of course. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it for anybody else. Uh, it's, that's it's, that's it's a, your DNA. It's a crazy thing to do. It's, don't go into that, but. Um, don't go into what? Don't, don't go being a fishing guy. <laughs> <laughs> but if you can't literally do anything else, if your whole life is just, this is what I, this is it, then great, then do it. But you're not going to be, you're not going to make money. You're, you're, it's hard. Um, the divorce rate among fishing guides in the Florida Keys, I wouldn't even want to think about it. Yeah. How hard is it on your family and the dynamics of uh, distance and, you know, the, you know, where you used to live and where you live now and uh, the dynamics of a family life uh, inside the world of a fishing guide? It's, it's incredibly difficult if you want to be really good. If you want to be okay, not a big deal. Get off the water at four, go home. Not even that. Not even that. Like, but it's that pursuit of learning everything. And to learn everything, you have to be out there all the time. And it doesn't matter if you're off. I mean, like Steve Huff right now, he's supposed to be retired. He's fishing all the time. He can't help it. Yeah. And he's not just going to places he knows. He's going to places new to learn more. And if that's the way you're wired, then it's hard. I mean, bless Patty Huff's heart. I don't know how she's done it all these years. Especially comes, riding a bike across the country. Steve comes walking <laughs> in, you know, I mean, we're over there to go have dinner. And she's like, oh, they're supposed to be back, you know, and here's 730. It's they come, dark. They come strolling in, you know, he's fishing Lenny Berg, one of the great icons of the sport. You know, and Lenny, I think, is 85 now. And Steve's mad at Lenny because after pulling two miles down the river, Lenny stops at the best spot because he needs to take a leg. Steve's like, what are you doing? Peeing at the best spot. You know? <laughs> 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 but that's how Steve Phil still feels, you know? Right. It's just, he's you just know what? It. You know what? Who am I to say? But um, you're a real inspiration to people who love this game people who love fishing, people who love being a guide because you are a guide's guide in that you too like Steve, you like adventure, you like newness, and you're willing to push your your own DNA as hard as, as you can push it to find the new stuff after all these years. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a great testament to you and, and your fellow guides that are all icons. I mean, you're right there with them. All those years fishing tournaments and the in the learning curve with Dell and to hear you now still say that you can hardly sleep at night <laughs> and you've remained under the radar for so many years. That's yeah. That's what I find really cool. I no, I don't want 
<laughs> I stay low key. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. But yeah, just man. Yeah. I mean one permit one permit out of some oddball new thing that nobody else would think about is worth twenty at flat for sure it's just like yeah (laughs) (laughs) nobody else will ever think of this and that's like that's awesome to me i love it i love it yeah what's the greatest surprise you've ever had as a guide if you can find that in what way like all of a sudden like wow this is new this works. You know, um, I don't know. I mean, that's a hard, I don't know what that would be. Because you've had such a big life for so many years. We forget about all those little uh, hurdles that we jump right, over right. along the way of success. Right. You know, I, I would say, you know, for me as a tarpon fisherman, it was actually finally understanding about watching the fish and reading the fish and and giving the fish what that fish needs to get the bite and that relationship between an angler and a fish right right made all the difference in the world but unless you're in the bow of a boat all the time you don't really know the fish right like permit i don't know permit but you know permit you know the timing of when to present that fly right. and the angles and all that I know when, you know, I mean, I was fishing a long time ago, so we had laid up fish and we understood how to drift that fly into the current and know when to just bump it. Mm -hmm. And then that to me was like this enormous light that went off. I got that fish and I knew I had that fish before I ever threw the fly. Mm -hmm. Was there any something like that for you? as a guide understanding you know where you fished when you fished those locations and i would think water level being able to read water level and and that water table that made the fish happy yeah i mean i i think about you know on the permit scale because i fish permits so much um just like when yeah, those moments of when to put the bug out there. And it's it's just epic different success by knowing that and versus just chunking it at a permit. And you can always tell, and I won't I won't say names, but there was a guy who fished with I mean, every guy in the keys for years and years and years and years and years and years. And the first time I got him on the boat, I went you have no idea how to fish. A fish was just like, he would see a fish and it's like, cast. I was like, stop. Wait, let's think about this. Let's analyze this. What, what do we need to do here? You know, and some of that stuff on permit, like it's huge and people don't think about it. People are like, oh, they're so spooky. Well, they are, but watch what he's doing. Watch for that moment, and that's your time, and that's the time to do it, but do it right the first time. And that's one of the things I think I kind of got from Steve all along was like, I'm a big, 
one cast. One good cast. That's what Harry always taught me. One cast, one fish. I will put the boat. I'll put the boat right where it needs to go. And then you make the cast. But I'm not. But when I put the boat there, you need to make the cast. Because now we're close or whatever. And you're not going to make the five bad casts all around. The fish is going to leave, you know. So, I mean, some of those, you know, learning that kind of stuff was always big. Um, versus spots or anything like that. I can't really think of that kind of stuff, you know. <laughs> Anything you want to throw out there uh, that we haven't spoken about? I, I mean, know. we've had we've had a great conversation about a lot of different things. Yeah. Anything I, you want to tell your fellow guides or upcoming I, guides? I would love to see guides think a little bit more about their actions and how it's going to affect more than five minutes from now how it's going to affect the tarpon the rest of the season, how it's going to affect those permit for the next two weeks. Um, when you come off a flat, I mean, and I'm guilty of it too sometimes, but why are you like, put the push ball down and boom, pull out way. Why are you, what are you doing? Um, you should not be starting that motor until you're out in five, six feet of water out away from that flat. Um, Every time there's fish there, you might not have a clue that they're there, but now you just blew them out and you, they made them run. And biologically, those fish can't keep getting scared away all the time because they're losing calories. And every time they do that, that keeps happening over and over. They're not coming back. They can't do it. It wasn't physically possible for them to do that. Just take consideration of what you're doing out there. And, and same with like coming into a spot, like, Okay, there's some other tarpon boats around, or there's some permit guys. Stop. Stop out there. Watch for five minutes, ten minutes. See what they're doing. Okay, is it legitimate for me to do this? Am I being a ding-a-ling for doing this? Um, what's the proper thing? And, you know, the my Catholic education, do unto others as you want them to do unto you. Would you want that guy to do that to you? Probably not. So don't do it to them, you know, just little things like that. And I think we could all be better, including me. I mean, for sure. I don't think we all need to be crazy out there. Um, and I think I've started this year and, you know, I probably will get shot by somebody, but I'm telling people like, no, this is not good. And I don't mean just like guides. I mean like recreational people out there, you know, and you just see them do something. It's like, if we all just sit there and let that keep happening, it will keep happening. It changes the game. Yeah. And we can all sit there and go, this guy's doing, you know, it's like, talk to him, just say, Hey, here's what's going on here. And a lot, it's amazing how people don't know. And I sometimes has, I mean, I, I sometimes I hesitate a lot sometimes because I'll see somebody doing something and I realize they have no idea that, there's like a bunch of permit that they just ran right over and you kind of like, do I want to tell you <laughs> right, what you just did wrong? Right. Should I just let you or do just it? Let the, because <laughs> that hopefully they, they're not going to be doing or coming by that way right. again tomorrow. You know, there's this, there's a spot in Key West that one of the hotshot guides in Key West has run over that spot 
so many times. He doesn't say know names. they're there. Say names, Mike. No, no names. <laughs> we I want names. I won't say the name. We want names. <laughs> so many times. While you're fishing there? Sometimes while I'm fishing there. A couple times while I'm fishing there. Mostly just going home. And it's one of the best permit spots in Key West. In fact, it's the permit spot in Key West that half the permit over 30 pounds I've ever caught have been on that flat. <laughs> and just burns right over the top. <laughs> it burns right over the top of it. And it doesn't realize it. You know, and that's one of those things. It's you like, don't want to tell him. No. Yeah, I'm not going to say anything. No. <laughs> you have newfound competition. <laughs> Leave it alone. Well, it's been great hanging with you, Michael. I, you know, I, I love hanging with you at the at the ramp, you and your brother, and you know, knowing that you were down here when I first got started. Um, I don't, I don't know if I'm a dinosaur, but you definitely are. <laughs> we, we both are dinosaurs. <laughs> but everybody has such great affection for you. You know, Harry and and Steve Huff and everybody, and the way you and your brother fish. You you do your own thing. You go well away from everybody else and uh there's great admiration for how you fish and who you guys are as people and we really appreciate you joining us well thank you You're i mean a good pal. i think all documenting all these great stories of all these people uh it's just wonderful it's just i can't stop watching that's for sure <laughs> well thank you mike thanks so much man you're a role yeah. model to a lot of thank people you. yeah for, no doubt thanks pal Aside from his great fishing attributes, Mike Guerin's energetic smile and joy de vie are compelling components to a great person. I can't wait to spend a day with him on the water, and if we ever struggle to find a fish, his laughter alone will make it a great day. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do us a favor and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to see more content or behind the scenes, please follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. We'll see you again soon.